0: Well, uh, Otto von Bismarck is reported to have said that there are two things you never want to see made. Okay, maybe you know this, laws and sausages. Uh, but I think I'd add a third thing this evening, I think I'd add uh, sermons. Okay, you, you don't want to know, really, uh, what uh, it's, you don't want to see what it's like to make a sermon, the, the tears, the the prayers the desperation uh, that can sometimes uh, go into uh, preparing a sermon. One of the questions uh, that people like Andy and myself and Chris and others have to wrestle with when we are preaching is how much of God's Word to put before God's people. Um, Do we do what we sometimes do at St. Peter's? Do we take a, a kind of deep dive into one verse Uh, Do we do what Andy did this morning and look at a a really obvious kind of section of Scripture? Or do we sometimes stand back and try to take in a kind of bigger view? And it's that third thing I want to do tonight as we look at uh, Exodus chapter 17. This chapter, it breaks into two. Uh, The headings you'll see in your your Bible, hopefully, it's kind of obviously would break into two sections. And we could uh, spend two weeks looking at it. But I want, to, uh, I want to look at both sections together tonight, not just because they take place in the same location, but because there's actually more overlap between these two incidents than we might first think. And in this chapter of God's Word, in Exodus chapter 17, God's people face two enemies. Uh, one of those enemies is really obvious. And the other enemy is a lot less obvious. In verses 8 to 16, they face the Amalekites. But really, in verses 1 to 7, they face themselves. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, to borrow from somebody else, what we have in this chapter, really, is an internal threat and then an external threat. An internal threat followed by an external threat. We're used to that language, aren't we? The internal threat is the employee secretly working against the business, but the external threat is the the hacker trying to take that business down. It's the difference between the, the homegrown terrorist and the big storm. Both of those things are deadly, aren't they? Both of those things are dangerous, and the same is true in our passage this evening. We're going to see two threats to God's people, and so not surprisingly, I've got two points tonight, and they're pretty simple, and what I want to do is I I go through, I want to, I'm going to give you those points now, but I want to try and add layers to them as we work through the passage. Here's the two points, what God gives and how God saves. What God gives and how God saves someone in our house is reading a biography of the former US president, Ronald Reagan. It's not the person that you might think. It's not the person married to the person you might think. It's actually Michael. One of his uh, favorite things to do is remove all the books from the bookcase, the bottom shelf, uh, in our living room, arrange them on the floor. And his favorite book at the moment is a biography of Ronald Reagan. He loves to flick through it Uh, He's very interested. I think it's because it's got a gold spine. And Ronald Reagan uh, looks kind of uh, quite friendly in the the front of the the cover. During the second presidential debate in 1980, Ronald Reagan was squaring up to uh, Jimmy Carter, who was the president at the time. And Ronald Reagan was the master of the one-liner. He was known as the great communicator. And uh, he achieved what so many politicians long to have in debates like this he he came up with a little phrase that was captured by the media it was replayed and and replayed again and again and the phrase was just four words it was this there you go again there you go again jimmy carter went on the attack against him and that little phrase there you go again it just diffused all the attacks. It made Ronald Reagan seem like the kind of man the American people should have in the White House. Congenial. Well, you could be forgiven for saying, There you go again tonight. Not just because I'm talking about American history, but because these verses are about grumbling. And this is the third week in a row, isn't it, that uh, we've thought about grumbling. But it's in God's Word, isn't it? And so maybe we need to hear it tonight. In verses 1 and 2, we see a familiar problem, and we see a familiar response. It's same old, same old, isn't it? God's people are on the move. They arrive in Rephidim, and once again, they can't find any water. It's a familiar problem. And then in verse 2 and following comes the familiar response. They quarrel, they grumble, they accuse... And it's really important to remember what God has done for them in the last couple of chapters. God has taken them through water. That's chapter 15. There's been a miraculous deliverance. And then there's been wonderful provision. God had had given them food. God had given them reliable food, sufficient food. In chapter 16, all they had needed, His hand had provided in other words, at this point in chapter 17, God's people, they have every possible reason to believe that he is going to provide for them again, that he is able to do that. And yet, instead of crying out to him in their need, instead of acknowledging their dependence on him, they grumble, don't they? The Bible is so realistic Uh, This story hasn't been kind of edited out. If you and I were writing it, we'd probably want to, you know, delete this account. The characters have not been airbrushed because sometimes people who have experienced God's goodness in a very real way, the people who have every reason to trust in him, sometimes people like that, people like us behave like this. And you and I this evening, for Christians, we all know this, don't we? God can have, He can have proven himself to us repeatedly. And yet sometimes something happens in our lives that, that makes us stop trusting Him, stop talking to him, start grumbling. I wonder if that's you this evening. Are you angry with God tonight? Other people don't don't know about it, but you are angry with Him. We'll see how dangerous that can be uh, in a few moments. But many people, as they've looked at this passage, as they've looked at one to seven, they've compared it to a trial in a courtroom. And we see that. We see some of that, don't we, in the language that Moses uses in verse 4. He says, these people are ready to stone me. He, he's afraid for his life. And yet, as we've seen so often in these chapters, God is the one who is really on trial, isn't he? Or whom God, God's people have put on trial. Look at the, the question at the end of verse 7. This is what God's people were really asking as they complain. Is the Lord among us or not? Is God actually with us? And lots of God's people ask that question, don't they? This is what makes God's response all the more remarkable. In verse 5, Moses is to take the elders and staff and, and to wait for God to appear. In verse 6, God promises to stand before him on the rock. And as the rock is struck, the water, it, the water will flow. It's not hard to see a picture, a pointer uh, to the gospel here. In fact, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks about this incident, and he says that rock was Christ. Listen to one author. God sent his son into the world, and people did to him what the Israelites wanted to do with Moses. The son of God was a man without a home, a wanderer on earth. He was hungry and thirsty. When his life was almost over, he was deprived of all his rights. He was stripped Mocked, beaten, and then condemned to die the most disgraceful and excruciating death. Death on a cross. That rock was Christ. See, I said this section was about what God gives. And God does give. He gives a whining people water, doesn't he? A grumbling people are given what they need. They're given something to drink. But that's not all God gives. See, this incident is picked up by Paul, as I said, but it's also picked up by the psalmist. Look at the two names in verse 7 that are mentioned there, Massa and Meribah. And as you have those uh, two names in your mind, turn with me to to Psalm 95, which we read at the beginning of uh, the service, Psalm 95. And look how this incident... Uh, is picked up by the psalmist. Psalm 95, It's as I said, it's the kind of psalm we often read at the beginning of a service. Its Verses uh, are, are lovely, aren't they? Uh, the, the few verses at the beginning, uh, they speak about uh, God being our rock, our creator. They say that we're his flock. It's wonderful stuff. But then look what happens towards the end of verse 7. Suddenly... Uh, there's a big change. In fact, the change in this psalm, is so stark that lots of people have said, maybe this psalm is like two psalms glued together. Because look what the psalmist says at the end of verse seven. Today, you have a God who is your shepherd, is your king. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness and so on. And so tonight, there's a warning to us from this little passage. Even though God provides, even though He gives water to His people, we need to ask questions like this Are we testing God? Are we grumbling against God? Are we listening to God? See, the sobering warning at the end of the Psalms, Psalm 95, is this, that God swore to those people, they shall not enter my rest. And the writer of Hebrews has our passage, and he has this Psalm in mind. When he comes to chapter 3 of his letter, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then he says this, It's, it's, it's kind of manna language, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Do that, he says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So tonight, can you hear the the warning in the whining? Hell begins with a grumbling mood. That's what C.S. Lewis said, isn't it? That's what we mentioned a few weeks ago. Hell begins with a grumbling mood and that's where grumbling can lead. It can cause us to so question God, so take him for granted that we harden our hearts, that we turn away from him for good. You've taken me for granted. I wonder if anyone has ever said that to you. I wonder if you have ever had to say that to somebody? You've taken me for granted. It can happen in any relationship, can't it? But this story, our Sam as well, it's saying to us that, that must not happen with God. What God gives. Well, there's a second thing tonight. In verses 8 to 6, we see this, how God saves, what God gives. Verses 8 to 16, how God saves. Um, I read this uh, week or heard a quote this week from uh, Samuel Johnson, who apparently said a long time ago, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. People need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. I think in, in these verses, in 8 to 16, there are lessons that probably if we're Christians, have been Christians for a while, we all know. And yet maybe tonight we, meet, we need to be reminded of a, a, a few things. In these verses, God, God's people face a second threat. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. That's the kind of sentence you and I, we can read in the Old Testament, yet we can easily miss, can't we, the fear, uh, the uncertainty behind that sentence. God's people have just escaped from a tyrant, but now they're face to face with another one, face to face with another foe. But this time, there's no sea, is there? There's no sea to swallow them up. Who were the Amalekites? Uh, The answer to that question, it begins back in Genesis chapter uh, 36. They were a people descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. They were a familiar foe. And they were also a ruthless foe. You see, listen to how this incident, this uh, battle, how it's described in, in Deuteronomy 25. Moses colors in the picture a little bit more. He says this, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. Then Moses says they had no fear of God. See, that last little phrase is key. The Amalekites were foes, and yet the Amalekites were also fools. They failed to fear Israel's God. God's people were to blot out their name from under heaven, and sadly, God's people failed to do this. And as a result, the Amalekites, they were not just a familiar foe, they were not just a ruthless foe, they were a persistent foe. They they became a kind of thorn in the flesh for Israel, always trying to do them harm. you and I, we're not called to fight uh, the way that, that, that Israel was. And yet, what happens in these verses, I think it's got lots to teach us. In fact, I think the language of teaching is really helpful. And God's people have been delivered from slavery. From slavery. They're in the wilderness. Israel is God's son. And God wants his son to go on to maturity. God has saved his people. But in these chapters, in 15 to 18, what's God doing? God is sanctifying them. God is teaching them. And God's people are are learning, as lots of God's people have learned, that the wilderness is a wonderful classroom, isn't it? See, this skirmish between Israel and the Amalekites, I think it shows us how God saves. And I think the big idea is this. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. See, it's so clear in the text, isn't it? They fight. And yet God is the one who ultimately delivers, isn't he? We see this in the details. Look at verse 9. Moses tells Joshua to prepare for battle. Choose for us men. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. What's interesting here is what Moses doesn't do. This is not God is so in control, I trust Him so much that I'm going to do nothing. And sometimes believers can think that the really pious thing in, in a situation is just to sit back, to to let God be God, to let go and let God. Well, the Israelites don't do that, do they? They fight. And yet, at the very same time, Moses is standing on the hill with the staff in his hand, and Aaron and her are with him. What was the staff? Why was the staff so important? What was, what was Moses doing with it? Listen to one author, Phil Rikin. The staff was the instrument of divine power and the token of God's covenant promise. By holding it up to heaven... Moses was appealing for God to defend his people. That's helpful, isn't it? Moses is he's praying to God, he's pleading with God to deliver, to help. These are your people, Lord. You've called me to lead them. You brought them out of slavery. God, you've made promises. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, you, you've promised to be with us. You've said you'll be our God. Deliver us. Deliver us from the hands of our enemies. God, do what you've said you would do. Be who you've promised to be for us. Brothers and sisters, tonight you need to know that you can pray like that. You can pray God's promises, God's character back to Him. You can appeal to Him on the basis of who He is and what He's done. We can get practical. Lord, you have promised to never leave me or forsake me. Help me to to know you're with me. I feel afraid. Lord, you've said in your word all things work together for good. Help me to believe that now because my life is falling apart. See, it's so clear, isn't it? Prayer, the prayer of Moses, it matters so much, doesn't it? Look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Hands are raised in battle. But hands are also raised in prayer, aren't they? And there's such a direct link between Moses' prayer and Israel's victory. As his hands grow weary, it's a familiar story, isn't it? Aaron and her, they come, they they hold up his hands. I've always thought his hands, like it's hard, even when people are holding up your hands, they must have been exhausted. He must have been exhausted. But when I first read this passage again, I thought of this, Psalm 127, unless... The Lord builds the house. The builders labor in vain. Moses' prayer was an expression, wasn't it? Of his dependence on God, his humility before God. And you and I, we need to learn from that, don't we? Church life, family life, our work, our witness, our bearing up under suffering, our loss. In all of these areas, you and I, we are completely dependent on Him. We cannot do them without Him. See, it's apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the Christian life, isn't it? If we try to to labor, if we try to do things in our own strength, we do them in vain. And you and I, we don't always think like this. We don't always act like this. Take church life. You can actually build something That looks very like a church very easily. You can make decisions to start something. You can get a good guy to lead it. You can run the right programs. You can do it all in such a way that prayer is quickly forgotten, that dependence on God is quickly forgotten, that you're doing it all in your own strength. So I thought of Psalm 127, but I also thought of Ephesians chapter six. Because I think this passage, I think it points us to the reality of spiritual uh, warfare. Andy spoke this morning, didn't he, about things going on behind the scenes. And you and I this evening, we are in a battle. We actually have an enemy. And we are called to fight against him. But what does Paul say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not kind of picking up our swords. No, our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You and I need to remember that there's always more going on, isn't there, than meets the eye. And so it's a rainy Thursday morning in an office in Dundee. A friend at work asks you how you're doing. They say, did you get up to anything last night? And you find from somewhere within you, you find the words to say very, very nervously, I I was at a prayer meeting. I was at a prayer meeting in our church. And you think, they think, He's, he's lost it. See, we feel so weak in those moments, don't we? We feel so weak talking about the prayer meeting. We feel so weak in the prayer meeting. We feel weak in that conversation. Your friend probably has no idea how, how important that was to you or how, how important the prayers of God's people will be seen to be when Jesus returns. But let's remember, let's keep on wrestling in prayer. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray with one another. And speaking of remembering, just look at the closing verses. See, it seems that God wanted uh, his people to remember this uh, incident. He tells Moses to write it down. He says to recite it in the ears of Joshua. And really, these two words, never forget Never forget, that was to be written across this scroll. They were to remember this incident. They were to remember that God was the one who gave them the victory. They were to remember how God gave them that victory. They were to remember that God's ultimate victory over all that opposes him is certain. He would blot out the Amalekites. There would be war from generation to generation. Maybe you hear that language of kind of blotting out the Amalekites and so on, and 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 you think that's that sounds harsh. Well, look at verse sixteen. See, Moses' hands they'd been raised in prayer, hadn't they? But God says the Amalekites had, had tried to lay a hand upon his throne. Can you see that hand upon the throne of the Lord? They, they, they tried to, to go against his rule. They tried to destroy his people. And God cannot, God will not allow that to happen ultimately. God's people are so precious to him that he will always do whatever it takes to protect them, to protect us. So Moses wrote something down, but Moses also worshipped. He built an altar. He called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. Now, what's a banner? A banner is uh, really a flag, isn't it? It's like, I don't know, like a standard. Uh, A banner is the kind of thing you see in the heat of a battle. It's the kind of thing that troops gather around. It's the kind of thing they fight for. And friends, tonight, Jesus himself is our banner. See, listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 11. It's a beautiful chapter. Uh, You can read it later on. It's a chapter that speaks about the great future God has for his people. And at the heart of that future is the Messiah. But listen to what's said about him. In Isaiah 11, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will come. They will will rally to him. And then Isaiah says, his resting place will be glorious. It's, It's a promise. It's a promise that when Jesus comes, the nations will flock to him. They'll come to him like a magnet. He will be the center. He will be the focus. He, All eyes on him. Friends, we are in a war. All sorts of trouble will come to the church. Threats from outside. Threats from inside. But what did Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He is our prophet. He, he speaks the truth to us. He is our priest. He lives to pray like Moses, to, to intercede for us. And he is our king, our warrior, who will one day come, one day come for us. May God help us to, to look to him and to live for him and to do that until at last. Until at last we enter his rest. Well, let's pray together.